Welcome to Finding Certainty with your host and U.S. Army veteran, Patrick Lang. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Patrick and his expert guests how to attract more certainty into your business and your life. Now, here is your host, Patrick Lang. Welcome to Finding Certainty. If you're a uh, frequent listener, we appreciate you checking back in and being with us. If you're new to the show, thanks for stopping by. Here at Finding Certainty, we analyze various aspects of uncertainty and how to overcome it, and certainty and how to achieve it. Today, we have a very special guest, Miss Jessica Mass. She is the director of aftercare for Operation Underground Railroad. I'm going to ask you your uh, official title, Jessica. I know it's longer than that, but the uh, uh, the the episode today is really the the culmination of a series that we've been doing this entire month on OUR on anti-trafficking and the work they're doing to help rescue children from slavery, from anti uh, from sex trafficking, etc. Not just children, but also uh, others. What OUR has accomplished over the last several years is is extraordinary. And Jessica has been a big part of that effort. So thanks for being with us, Jessica. I really appreciate you uh, being here today. Oh, thank you. It's an honor to be here. That's well, our, our honor. I know I know none of you there who are on the team and in the trenches want to be recognized. And uh, it's not about you. I know it's about the, the effort and the mission and the work. but. Um, I think one of the best ways to understand a project is to understand it through the eyes of the people that are, as I say, in the trenches, right? That are that are in it, that are observing, that are watching, that are that are really um, leading the charge. And you are definitely one of those. And I just want to speak collectively for all of us. Uh, we, we really appreciate your efforts. Part of the reason for this series we've done this last month and this show is to try to help. Um, help advertise and help promote those efforts and help support you and what you're doing in our, in our own small way. I know you have a lot of, uh, a lot of fans out there and uh, there's more and more people that are joining the uh, charge and taking part, which is great news, right? Um, so I always start out the show just sharing two reasons why I've invited this specific guest. And the first is that Jessica has been with uh, OUR now for uh, over eight years, uh, you started. You said in t- 2015, right? And uh, and so she's seen a lot. She's seen how the organization has grown, is getting better, and kind of refining the process and so forth. And uh, it's like any uh, startup, right? I've always said the only difference between a for-profit and a non-profit is is the word "non" at the at the beginning. You know, you're still dealing with. Uh, bills and expenses and hr and payroll and you know and and uh licensing and legislation all the all the headaches of a business and yet you have obviously a different mission right but jessica's been there for a number of years and she has uh, been able to see how the organization has grown i think she can share some insights into what they're doing and how they're doing it the second reason, though, is she comes at it from a different angle or from a different direction than Matt Osborne, the COO, from Nate Lewis, who we had on last week, who's the director of 
development. Um, she is in charge of aftercare for the for the organization, and it is an essential piece of the process. Maybe even the most essential, in my opinion, because it's one thing to save kids and create and, and help survivors, but then what? Right? If we if we just abandon them, send them on their way, send them back home, that's not always the best thing. They need support. They need healing. They need they need systems in order to move to the next chapter. And so, I think it's a really important piece of this story. And of this process. And so, Jessica, thank you for being here. Thank you for maybe sharing some insights into it today. We really appreciate your time and your efforts for sure. So, okay, I warned you a little bit, but starting out, I always like to just hear a little bit about your your story. You know, where are you from, and and uh, maybe a little bit about yourself, your family, and how did you become Jessica Mass of OUR, the the icon. <laughs> Well, I don't know about an icon, but it's a, it's been a great journey. I actually grew up on a farm in the Midwest. And so sometimes people do ask me, how do you get to work in anti-trafficking? And I say that anyone can, because I really did grow up with humble beginnings on a farm in the Midwest. And I didn't really have aspirations of doing international anti-trafficking work, but I... Yeah, very, very different than what I had envisioned as a little kid. Uh I think uh, one of the things, though, that impacted me the most was my parents. I have two incredible parents who they they love God and they serve people as if they wouldn't they don't know how to do anything else. That's just their life. And so I had it modeled to me growing up where you see somebody in need and you help out and you don't ask for anything in return. You do it because that's what people do. It's, it's the right thing to do. So you serve others. And I love that. I I, I completely agree. Yeah. My wife, by the way, is a farmer's daughter as well. She's the oldest of 10 children, grew up on a dairy farm in, in uh, Idaho. I always say I married the farmer's daughter and, uh, (laughs) You, you come. I, 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 I don't know if she appreciates that, but I, I view it as a badge of pride because you're, you're in such, you learn such great work ethic and just great principles. Anyway, go ahead. I like your wife already. She sounds wonderful. <laughs> yeah, she's awesome. Yeah. So I grew up there, and when I was 13 years old, there was an opportunity with my church to go on a youth missions trip to Brooklyn, New York. And I had such a life transforming experience on that trip. And I think a lot of it had to do with it being so drastically different from what I grew up experiencing, seeing around me. And we were working in the projects as a 13 year old. And when I started to see drugs, alcohol, um, exploitation, extreme poverty, it changed me. And the reason why it changed me is because I realized that we're all born into different situations. I didn't earn a situation to be born into a family that loved me, that kept me safe, that cared for me. And some of the people that I was working with in New York, 
they it's not their fault that they were born into these situations that were much more difficult than I had. And between seeing what my parents had done and then seeing what I was experiencing in Brooklyn, it really set the tone for my life where I said, if there's something I can do, if I can really have an impact in this world, then I want to do that. And so I would say since I was 13, I knew what I wanted to do and I had many opportunities to pursue that. I give a lot of credit to my youth pastors, to my parents for helping channel that energy. Because when you are young and you're a teenager, you feel like you can take on the world and have an impact. It's actually one of the reasons why I do love teenagers. I love talking to teenagers, speaking to groups of teenagers, because I remember when I was that young and people told me all the time, well, you can't make a difference. You can't, you can't do this or you can't do that. And I was always like, yes, I can. And I was that strong teenage energy that I really did believe that if you have a humble heart and and willing hands, you can make an impact in in others' lives for the good. I couldn't agree more. You know, we have a a lot of guests here on finding certainty from all different walks of life, business and sports and in nonprofit work and so forth. But that seems to be a theme that runs through many of the conversations we have. You know, they're they're leaders that you know you you try to tell them they can't do something, they say, "Yeah, watch me," right? And and yet, I think as 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 you grew up, seeing this juxtaposition between the farm the family you grew up with and these these kids and these people in the inner cities that, that had so much need, I, you hit on a really important point in my opinion that they don't deserve what they've received. Right? It's not a curse. It's not a just the luck of the draw. Right? It could have been me. Could have been you. Like living in Haiti or living in inner city New York or or something, but. But as you looked at that, as you as you saw that juxtaposition, you say it changed you. I think many of us go through that, and many of us have yet to go through that. There are many out there who have have means, they're in a certain demographic, they're in a certain part of, of, of the country or whatever, and they don't really understand how dire the need is. One of the best things about what you guys are doing and other organizations like you, the the film recently, Sound of Freedom, it's helping shine a light on how dire the need is, right? How great it is and how they need our help. It's not that this this isn't something they wanted to to happen to them. They took on themselves in most cases. This is something that is happening to them and they need our help, right? Would you agree? Absolutely. I think, you know, one of the phrases of too much is given, much is required. I I do think that. And I think a lot of times people think that they can't make a difference and have an impact. And I always go back to principles like love. If you have love in your heart and you actually can give somebody pure, not exploiting them type of love, that really does change people's lives. And so whether it's you can share a meal with somebody or you can actually go to places that are uncomfortable for you because it's different than your norm, I would always encourage people, you can have an impact. If I was a 13-year-old 
little girl from the farm in the Midwest. And I believed that I could have an impact. I truly believe that anyone that if they are acting out of love can have an impact as well. I agree. I love that, uh, that story of, I love that story of the, the guy who was walking down the beach and saw the little girl throwing uh, starfish in the water. And there were hundreds of starfish that had been washed up on shore. And he says, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm saving these starfish. And, and he says, there's hundreds of them. And he says, you can't help all of these. And she looks down, she picks one up and she throws it in the water. She says, well, I just helped that one. You know, and it's such a great metaphor, maybe just a great analogy of how each of us can help. We may not be able to tackle the entire problem and certainly not by ourselves, but we can put a dent in it. And I'm a firm believer that we can create ripple effects that continue to grow. You know, one of my favorite things about OUR is that you are not only saving victims and, and creating survivors, but you're in powering law enforcement you're helping stop predators you're helping you know you've helped thousands of of uh you know um predators potential what do they call a um um suspected predators i guess files or child pornographers or whatever but they've you've led to to um incarceration and how many hundreds of children are were saved by one arrest, right? That is a ripple effect that may continue for generations, not just the children that they affect, but oftentimes someone who's trafficking becomes a trafficker, right? Because that's what, it just creates a, 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 a terrible cycle. So I, I love that. I love that the ripple effects that you all are creating. And to your point, if a 13-year-old girl can do that and make a difference, anyone can, right? Mm -hmm. Any any more thoughts on that, Jessica? Well, I think, too, with the effect, and one of the things I love to see is when somebody is rescued or somebody finds freedom, whatever that story looks like when they're going from being trafficked or exploited to freedom, What what people don't see a lot of times is the children that they have, that now those chains are broken. And a lot of the survivors that I work with throughout the years all have kids. And so when I see a person go from, from being trafficked to freedom, I see all their kids. I see their family members. I see everybody that's affected within their ecosystem. And it is powerful because that really is breaking the chains. It's right. this person went through this and now their kids aren't going through it. And hopefully that chain is broken forever so that the generations to come are now living in freedom. And so to your point where, you know, the starfish, it's like, yeah, maybe there's that one starfish that people see, but that person is affecting generation after generation after generation. I would right. apply it to ourselves. What I do with my life, the impact I have, the choices I make, my morality, all of that impacts my children and then their children and their children. And so from the survivor's perspective of the chains being broken to somebody that maybe hasn't been exploited or trafficked, the impact that we all have, 
I think is something that we could be more intentional about where it's like, how can I make sure that I'm living a life, whether that's in service or living in freedom, all these different things. Am I living a life that impacts the generations to come in a way that I want it to? Totally agree. hundred percent. We're already coming up on our first break here in a couple of minutes, but I know you didn't go from a 13-year-old girl to the director of aftercare at OUR. I know you have a double major, right? Theological and biblical studies and also education. And you went on to get a master's degree eventually. How did you go from that girl who was so affected by your mission trip and some of those experiences to transitioning into what you do today? Yeah, I went through, I went on several of those different missions trips throughout high school. I started working in nonprofit when I was 17 years old. And so it's just been a very intentional journey where I was working with people who had disabilities and, and different challenges, special needs. And then I was working in the inner city in Florida with teenagers there. And then I worked, I moved and lived in Chicago and I worked in the inner city there and all these different steps. And then I lived in Oregon and I started working with kids that were in foster care. And I started seeing trafficking within the foster care system and or kids that were trafficked and then placed in the foster care system. And then I ended up moving to Africa and got to work in different hospitals and places there to see how I could have an impact in on an international level with helping people understand mental illness, helping people understand exploitation and trafficking. And so I would say every step of the way was another piece where you're building upon your knowledge, your experience, and just going from one thing to the next, you miss out on some of those pieces if that's your goal. So I I had the opportunity to go through all these different different things. That's fascinating. It says a lot about you that you knew what you wanted to do and you set out on that path and you've gained all these different experiences in different areas of the country. I mean, I read that you've been on six different continents working in this uh, in this arena. Um, we are up against our break, but when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about your your current role, what you do, how and how aftercare really works. There's a lot that goes into it, I know. Uh, we're visiting with Jessica Mass. She is the director of aftercare for Operation Underground Railroad. And uh, it's a critical piece in this ongoing conversation we're having, this ongoing mission that OUR and others are, are undertaking. It's a massive um, challenge, fastest growing criminal enterprise in the world, right? Uh, we'll be right back. Thanks for uh, being here, Jessica. And if you're listening, don't go away. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Certainty Management can help create more certainty in your life with our deep discount health insurance options, even for 1099s, part-time employees, volunteers, and more. Pay less to protect yourself, your loved ones, and your team. Call 888-684-3122 for a free quote today. That's 888-684-3122. Visit us on the web at CertaintyTeam.com. 
That's certainty, T-E-A-M, like Mary.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. If you're a nonprofit in need of funding, we can help. Certainty Management is a cost reduction firm that also helps churches, schools, sports teams, and other nonprofits raise unlimited zero cost funding. Best of all, you don't have to sell anything or ask for donations. Call 888 684 3122 to learn more today. That's 888 684 3122. Visit us on the web at certaintyteam.com. That's certainty, T E A M, like Mary.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Finding Certainty with Patrick Lang. Have a question for Patrick or his guests? Join us on the show at 866 472 5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now, back to the show with Patrick. Thanks for sticking with us, if you have. And Jessica, thanks for being with us. We're visiting with Jessica Mass. She's been with Operation Underground Railroad now for eight years and running, and uh, I've served in various roles, I'm sure, throughout that time. But... Have you been involved in aftercare from the beginning, or did it kind of transition from one role into another into doing what you do now? Have you worked with aftercare the entire time, or did you start somewhere else? I actually did start with aftercare. I was working a little bit with the development team as well, but when I came on board, it was to help create the aftercare program for OUR. There wasn't really a program that had been created at that point, and um, so Tim and the rest of the team asked that I would help create that. Well, I know it's a team effort, right? I mean, Tim Ballard gets a lot of recognition for having started the company or the organization. And and there are those who are more visible, I guess, than others. There are many behind the scenes, many even who we don't, we, we can't show their faces because they're in undercover operations and so forth. But it is a team effort, right? Any organization is not one person. Um, what I love about where OUR is today, where it started with Tim, Tim Ballard may have been the founder and he, but what he did well was he surrounded himself with good people. People, you know, he, he, he himself says, I have, I'm surrounded by people who are better than me, right? And um, I know as a business owner, I own three different companies that, that is the key to have good people who are better at, the, at what they do than you are and collectively you accomplish great things, hopefully. Um, as you've watched o, uh, OUR's aftercare program develop, do you mind just defining for anyone who's listening, what is aftercare and how does it work? Um, I, you know, I think it's, it may be obvious to some, but some may be saying, well, what, what does that mean, aftercare? And then let's, maybe we can get into a little bit about why it's so important and 
and so forth. But assume I know nothing and explain what is aftercare. Absolutely. It's my favorite thing to talk about. But you are right where surrounding yourself by good people and a team. And I just want to say very directly and clearly that I have an amazing team and the aftercare team, the 15 people in the U.S. and the 40-ish contractors around the world, they are better than I am. They do more than I could ever do by myself. And I think that's the beauty of a team is even though I'm the one who started this aftercare program that we have, without them, so many survivors would not have received services and the quality of care. And so I just want to recognize all of them and the credit goes to them because they truly are amazing, passionate human beings that are willing to get in the fight and and fight anti-traffic or fight for anti-trafficking. I love that. And I've met several of them. I've been to your galas. I've been involved to some degree. And, you know, you're right. They're incredible. And, um, you know, as we talk about aftercare, um, OUR gets a lot of recognition and a lot of scrutiny on the fact that they rescue survivors, right? And they and they don't just teach a man to fish. They or they don't just give a man a fish. They teach a man to fish. What I mean by that is they're not just rescuing survivors by themselves. They're partnering with law enforcement all over the world and teaching them skills and giving them resources. I mean things like dogs that will sniff out where you know, a flash drive is hidden and things like that for evidence. So they're doing a lot of things on that side of the coin, getting a lot of recognition for doing that and doing amazing things. I mean, they've saved thousands of of, of kids and, and and other victims. They've they've put thousands of, of predators away or helped in that process. But as we said before, once a child or a victim, an adult even, is saved, once they're pulled out of that that hole they're in, then what, right? What's next? And that's where you come in, Jessica. Again, if you don't mind, just explain to people what happens next. I and mean, what is this aftercare that's so important, but maybe people don't quite understand? Yeah, and I think it's a confusing piece to understand because there's so many different elements to it. So I'll touch on some of them, but it would take me a couple hours just to go through all the details of what aftercare actually is. So when a rescue operation happens, there is aftercare that's on site. And I think that that's the piece that most people will never see is that when, when there's an operation, when you're going from thinking, I'm about ready to get raped to now there's these people here. I don't know what's going on. There's police everywhere. There's a lot of fear that comes into those moments of the first rescue. And so when you have aftercare on site, our goal is to help the actual day of being of freedom be less traumatic than it might be without having aftercare there. So we That's do things like having uh, pizza on site. We have games puzzles. Uh, we have journals so people can write in it. We bring clothes so that if they feel like they are being, that they haven't had adequate clothes, that they can put that on over what they're wearing. We do, sometimes we're there for hours. Uh, it's not like 
somebody comes in, bad guys get arrested, survivors go to an aftercare home all within 15 minutes. I've been on operations before where I've been at the scene of where the sting operation happened for up to 10 hours. And so you think about these kids and they're having to wait there. Their minds start going in all different places. They're fearful. They don't know what's happening. A lot of the kids already have children. And so they're thinking about their children and where they're at at that time. And so we're there to really help with that first that first initial freedom. And then from there, we go to medical and everybody gets the opportunity to have a medical exam. I've been on an operation before where um, she was either 15 or 16. And she found out while we were at the hospital that she was pregnant. She had no idea. I've been at those same type of situations where somebody would find out that they had uh, HIV or a different STD. And so those types of things are big, big news to find out. Those are big things to find out. And so not having aftercare during those moments also would be traumatic because you need people to come around you during that time. And then so question, question oh, yeah, real quick. Um, I think many of us, we're uncomfortable just with law enforcement in general, right? I mean, I'm a fan of the police and fan of, I mean, I was former military. I was in the army for a long time, but I, you know, I think just the fact that they're law enforcement, they're there, they've got masks and guns and knows what, that must be terrifying to these children. And they're not people they know. They're, it's loud, maybe. It's, there's yelling. There's people getting thrown to the ground and so forth. And so how quickly are you as aftercare resources involved? Is it, is it immediately? Is it minutes? Is it they have to sit and wait and deal with that for, for several hours? You said you were there within 15 minutes. Is that right? Well, when the law enforcement goes in and they are arresting the traffickers, as soon as all the traffickers have been detained, whether that's they're in handcuffs or they're all in one room, but as soon as law enforcement has made sure that there's it's safe for us to go in, I've gone in within a few minutes after that. And so wow. we want to make sure that survivors are getting care as soon as possible because you're right. When I get pulled over by by a cop for let's say I'm speeding. Not that right. I'd ever do that, but let's say <laughs> um I see the lights. That's that's a little bit of a scary moment because it's disconcerting, right? Yeah. You automatically think, Am I in trouble? And so I think right. sometimes that's where the survivors' minds go to is I'm in trouble. And they don't know that they're not in trouble until we start explaining that, that they're safe. We're here for them, that the the traffickers are getting arrested but you all are safe and um you can imagine how that's that's feeling and how hard that is for survivors to believe well i know it's it's hard to believe but so often victims don't realize they're victims they feel like it's their fault or they feel like they're doing something they shouldn't do maybe even i mean it's it's physical they may even think it feels good right but it, it, it's it's so psychologically traumatizing. There's a lot of aftercare that has to take place to just help them wrap their head around what's happening. And 
be able to look at it in a healthy and a, uh, I think a, um, an, an accurate way. Yeah. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. Sometimes I, well, I should say I've had a lot of survivors describe to me that it takes a lifetime to really heal from what has been done to them. Uh, it's, you know, I, I, I what's that? I said, I can only imagine. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of the survivors describe having nightmares the rest of their lives about what happened or having triggers that they weren't have, they weren't planning on them coming up, but it just happens. And, and they're trying to deal with those throughout their, their entire life. I can only imagine. Um, other than being there to help with the initial trauma and the dis disorientation and everything that's happening, the medical exam, what, what happens next? I mean, I, I know, and if I can interject, my understanding is some, some trafficking victims are able to go home because they were stolen from their families or, and others, they can't go home because their families are the ones who actually trafficked them. They were poor or, and they were desperate and, or maybe they didn't even know what was happening. Maybe they did, maybe they were tricked, mm -hmm. but what happens next? How do these survivors actually get into a safe place to help them hopefully transition to the next chapter of their lives. Yes, you're right. Cause that first day is just the beginning and, and all those first steps is just the beginning for us personally. We always say that we will be in a survivor's life as long as he or she will let us. And so we will never force ourselves upon providing care. But if somebody wants us in their life, we will be with them throughout their entire life. I've gone to survivors' graduations and weddings and birth of their child. And there's things like that where it's such an honor to get to walk through life with anyone. And so what happens after, though, with the that first initial day is they either they go back to their family or they go to an aftercare home. Most countries do an evaluation for a couple of weeks to see if their family is safe, even if they are going back to their home. And, and then I've worked with survivors that have been in an aftercare home from age 10 all the way through 18 until they go on to either a job or university or vocational training. And they didn't have a family that was safe. And like you said, a lot of families have trafficked them. A lot of the survivors I work with, their family was involved in some way. And mm -hmm. I wish that was such a small percentage because a family, think about a family, the whole point of it is to create safety and love and acceptance and a sense of belonging and then you have some people that have their families are the ones that are actually exploiting and selling them. So I, I also think one of the important pieces of aftercare is that we are a family. We're providing that substitute family where we're really stepping in in all the ways that an actual family would. And that goes from love and care, but you also are providing, and this is what we do in aftercare, we do person-centered plans. And so whatever somebody needs is what we are doing evaluations on. That's what the local social workers are doing. And we're coming along the local social workers and helping them, the aftercare homes. But it's what kind of education do you need? 
Is it possible for you to catch up in school? Are you wanting to go and do a vocational training program? Are you wanting to go to university? Mental health therapy, what kind of mental health therapy do you want? Some people love yoga. Other people love uh, your traditional talk therapy. Uh, Some people love equine therapy where they're with horses. And so there's all these different types of modalities to be able to really help a survivor heal. And I believe that the key component is to have the survivor being the one that is leading their own healing journey. And we're walking alongside, we're giving suggestions, we are are helping them, but we are not saying this is the only way, or you have to go to university, or you won't be able to provide for your family. There's one girl, she's a survivor that's absolutely amazing, and she makes swimsuits. And that was her passion. She wanted to, she went through the aftercare program and her, she wanted to be a, a designer. And so she has an incredibly successful business uh, making swimsuits. There's another That's survivor funny. that comes to mind that she went back to school to become a social worker because she wanted to help in the same aftercare home that she went through. And so within what we've done at OUR with aftercare is we help pay for these things. We help walk alongside them. We um, provide all the different pieces that it would be in creating somebody's whole new ecosystem of how how do I build healthy relationships? What does a healthy friend look like? What does a healthy romantic partner look like? And a lot of the conversations that happen are things that if you grow up in maybe a traditional family, you might learn around the dinner table. But if you grow up in a family that's exploiting you, you didn't learn those types of things. I love how it's comprehensive. There's a lot of different kinds of support from helping maybe with adoption or or directing them toward a good adoption agency or helping with education and 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 counseling and vocations. Maybe they want to start their own business or something. But but so it's very comprehensive. They have a lot of opportunity, but it's very personalized. We're up against our our next break, visiting with Jessica Mess from OUR. We'll be right back and continue the conversation about what can be done to help the survivors of trafficking and slavery to still have a great life, going to deal with the trauma. They're going to have a lot of a lot to overcome and a lot to accomplish. It's not going to be an easy path, but they can still they can still have a great life, and um, there's some hope in that. Right. So we'll be right back, folks. Don't go away. Thanks. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. If you're a nonprofit in need of funding, we can help. Certainty Management is a cost reduction firm that also helps churches, schools, sports teams, and other nonprofits raise unlimited zero cost funding. Best of all, you don't have to sell anything or ask for donations. Call 888 684 3122 to learn more today. That's 888-684-3122. Visit us on the web at CertaintyTeam.com. That's Certainty, T-E-A-M, like Mary, dot com. 
Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Certainty Management can help create more certainty in your life with our deep discount health insurance options, even for 1099s, part-time employees, volunteers, and more. Pay less to protect yourself, your loved ones, and your team. Call 888-684-3122 for a free quote today. That's 888-684-3122. Visit us on the web at CertaintyTeam.com. That's Certainty. T-E-A-M, like Mary, dot com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to Finding Certainty with Patrick Lang. Have a question for Patrick or his guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now, back to the show with Patrick. Welcome back. We're visiting with Jessica Mass. She's been with Operation Underground Railroad for almost a decade now, and most of that working in their aftercare efforts. In fact, you helped design and develop their aftercare program, correct? Correct. Yeah. It's been, it's been an honor. It's been a long journey. I bet. How has it gotten better? In fact, I mentioned, I asked you during the break, if you knew the Child Hope Foundation, Kevin Clegg is a friend of mine, his organization, they do some amazing things with orphanages and helping vet orphanages, making sure they're not just another pool for trafficking, which I know happens out there. It's so important that you are vetting and, and, and verifying, making sure that aftercare uh, organizations or destinations or locations that you're using are going to help the cause, not, not contribute to the cause or, or help, uh, help your efforts not, not impede them, right? How do you do that? I mean, that's, that's a big task. I mean, how do you... How do you, as the director, make sure that you're you're partnering with the right organizations and the right orphanages and others, adoption agencies and so forth? I, I don't even know where you start. It is a huge task. You are, you're right. And I come from the philosophy of building genuine, real, authentic relationships in all areas of my life. And so I applied that to aftercare when I was uh, building the program from the beginning and and how do we vet aftercare homes, I would actually get to know the directors. There's many of the directors of these and founders of these different aftercare homes that I have been in their personal home. They've been in my home if they come to the U.S. I, I really believe that if they feel like it's a two-way street, where I'm being vulnerable with them because they're going to be vulnerable with me, that that is a key component to vetting. Of course, I have my checklist that I go through and evaluate the home and quality of care, look over their programming. Um, 
all those references, different references, <laughs> lots of references. Yes. Because everybody, you know, there's a reputation that a lot of aftercare homes get. And, um, but I would say that if you, and I spend a lot of time in those aftercare homes, it's not one time, or my team spends a lot of time in those aftercare homes. It's not a one time we went, we vetted, we're good. We'll see each other in five years. It's a right. very different approach where um, I think is a little out of the box because typical vetting, you know, maybe I don't know how government does it, but maybe government and how they vet different places is it's more of a checkbox and you don't build a relationship with whoever you're evaluating. But I have already talked to two of the aftercare home directors and founders this morning where they're in different places in the world. And um, I talked to several of them throughout the day and that's on a weekly basis usually. And I, I think that that would be a key component that I would, that I would mention. Yeah. You know, I can imagine that they're so grateful for your support, right? These are good people who are trying to make a difference in their local areas or, or even, you know, regionally, nationally, whatever. But these are people who who have the heart to make a difference for kids, for whoever it might be. And I'm sure they are just incredibly grateful for your efforts at supporting them and what they're already passionate about. Maybe, and you support them in several different ways, right? It's through education, it's through resources, through training. Uh, through you know, probably networking and collaboration, because then you're swapping ideas and creating systems. Um, what's been the biggest challenge in your mind in setting it all up and in making it the well-oiled machine that it is today? I'm sure you're continually getting better and still making mistakes, but what's been the biggest challenge? Well, I make plenty of mistakes. That's uh, that's true because <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm human. <laughs> But um, the biggest challenge, you know, I think in the beginning, it was finding all the different resources in a country. Because, I mean, think about it. When you're going to a country you've never been to, but, you know, I get a message from the operations team. Hey, we're going to do a rescue here. Go in, create relationships and build aftercare before we do this operation. I'm looking at a country that I've never been to. And this is in the beginning, never been to, and I don't know anyone. And so networking is one way where maybe I knew somebody in, in Africa that knew somebody in Europe, you know, and so we're, we're swapping right. different networking um, organizations and places. But I would say the, the hard things were finding out what actually helped. But what I did at first is, and I still do, and I still believe in, is that you go in and you always acknowledge whoever is working in that country, they're the experts. I'm not the expert. They're the experts in their country. They understand their culture. They understand how trafficking works in their country. And so I would say, metaphorically, I sit at their feet and I learn and I listen. And I think a lot of times if we would stop talking and we just sit there and listen to people, we really do find out what is their heart, what is their mission, why do they do what they do, and even a lot of the different vetting things that maybe somebody else would do differently than I do, I've learned by sitting at directors and founders' feet, and I just listen to them. Um, and I would say well, this I is think for survivors, sitting at their feet and learning from them and listening. 
that's the point I was going to make. I bet you learn a lot from the actual survivors, right? And I think you're absolutely right. You know, they know their culture. They know what's happening. They know the pros and the cons and the risks and who has to be, you know, uh, massaged or paid off or who has to, you know, who has to, uh, um, who has to be placated at least in the government to get the support they need. You know, there's, it's like when I go, when I travel anywhere in the, in the world, first thing I do is ask the local, where do the locals eat? Where do you, you know, because why I'm not going to go to the tourist place that's in the ad in the brochure or something listed on the cruise line or whatever. I want to know where is the best food in town. And I asked the most scruffiest looking local that I can find. I just actually did that in Skagway, Alaska. And I asked the guy who we were on an Alaska cruise and I asked the guy, where would you eat if, 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 you know, where do the locals eat? And he, he told us this great little fish place for crab and dungeness, you know, chowder. And it was amazing. Right. But I didn't see it listed anywhere on the, on the brochures. <laughs> and so it's a really good, it's a really good point. Um, we're coming toward the end of the show. It's, it's, it always goes fast. It surprises me how quickly the hour goes by, but as you look back over your career with OUR, is there, is there one thing that you'd want to share with the listeners about the effort or about the the work? I mean, I call it a mission that you all are on. You said earlier in the break that the most important thing you did as you started getting into this work was you said yes. And you kept saying yes and yes. I think personally that's the most important thing people can do is just be willing and be willing to take part in and reach out to the guys, to people like yourself, the men and women who are there and ask for ideas, right? Your website, OURrescue.org has lots of ideas for how people can get involved and maybe donate a little bit each month or go to a, start a fundraiser or, but as you look back over the last year, is there, is there any advice you'd give to those of us who want to take part other than saying yes and asking, you know, getting involved, is there any advice that you'd have to share? I would say know that you have something to offer. I think that there's plenty of people that think they have nothing to offer. And I would just say that's a lie. I will straight call it a lie because everybody has something to offer, whether that's your skill set. Maybe you're a nurse or a doctor and you can uh, go on a medical mission, or maybe you're a teacher and you can help tutor a child. I would say the things that I've learned is that I don't have to travel anywhere. I can literally go to my neighbor's house and serve. And I found that there's plenty of trafficking in my own backyard that I was clueless about before starting on this journey with working in anti-trafficking. Uh, there's kids that I've worked with literally in my own city that I have had relationships with for years that I still take them out to dinner or I show up at their sporting event or their dance recital or whatever it is, is those are things I'm not special. There's nothing special about me. You know, like I had said earlier, I just keep saying yes. And so to our listeners, I would say, say yes. Even if it's uncomfortable sometimes where you're like, oh, I'm trying to help mentor or tutor this person, and it's a little uncomfortable, be okay with being uncomfortable. Uh, get involved in the foster care system. I I feel like there's so many kids in foster care that have either been trafficked or exploited, 
that need to know what love is and they deserve to. So be a respite parent where you're just a parent on the weekend, be a full-time foster parent, be a mentor for kids in foster care. There's a program called the CASA program where you can be uh, representing a kid in court and helping be their advocate while they're in court. And so there's so many different ways. There's organizations probably in every city that people are in that are listening. And so find out what that local organization is and just say yes. Right. You know, as much as OUR is doing and as many opportunities as there are to get involved and help and support, there are hundreds of organizations out there doing similar work. It doesn't have to be OUR. I mean, OUR would love your support. They're doing amazing things. I can vouch for them. But like Jessica just said, just Google who's doing what, who, what are the social uh, programs in your own backyard? It's one of the things that's surprising to a lot of people. And they don't, they don't, they weren't aware that trafficking is a problem, not just in foreign countries or little back, you know, remote villages. It is literally in our own hometowns. And it's one of the great things that um, the movie Sound of Freedom has done. It's helped shine a light on this topic. It's one of probably the biggest benefit out of it. No funding has gone to OUR out of the movie, but there's been a great uh, a swelling in awareness and people wanting to be involved. But know that it's not just kids getting kidnapped overseas, put in a container. That's a small percentage of the trafficking and the problems that are going on. Many of it's right in our own homes, in our own backyards. And so What's the advice for everyone? If they wanted to help, how do we put a dent in trafficking? We've got two minutes left. We've got about a, a 60 seconds for your response and we'll wrap it up. But how do we try to stop it before it gets started? If you have children, be involved in their lives. Be, be aware of their social media. And if you have a niece or a nephew, be involved in their lives. If you are mentoring somebody, be a safe space that they can talk to. I would say that if you want to have an impact, you have to be involved in somebody's life. And so that is my advice to people. Of course, you can donate and that you know money will go to have an impact in, in so many different ways. But also don't deny that you can have an impact, whether you're 13 years old or you're 80 years old. We all have something to give. And a lot of times it's, will you give your two biggest resources, resources, which is your time and your energy. Those things are things that we don't get back in life. We spend them in every day and then we never get that again. So if you're willing to give your time and your energy to helping somebody else, a survivor of trafficking, somebody who's been exploited, a teenager that's at risk, get involved in people's lives. 100%. Jessica, thanks for being on Finding Certainty today. If you're listening in, please uh, if you'd like more information. You can go to OURrescue.org, text the word certainty to 26786 if you'd like more info about the show or about anything you've heard. And please share this episode with everyone you know. Go back through our episodes, share the OUR episode. That's one thing you could do today to help with the cause. Thanks for being here, Jessica. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning into today's episode of Finding Certainty. 
We hope you've gained some more insight into how to create more certainty in your own business or nonprofit. Join us next week for another taste of the certainty experience. Until then, we wish you greater certainty in all that you do.